Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody here. Everybody have a good week. Today is Sunday, which means it's going to snow tomorrow. I think that's the uh, way it works here uh, this winter. One of my kids was pointing that out to me. Uh, anyway, my name's Clay. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is great to see you guys out this morning. Uh, if I have not had the chance to meet you yet, come on up afterwards. I'll be hanging out up front. You want to just chat for a couple minutes, you want to pray, uh, you want to tell me what your thoughts were on the Super Bowl or anything like that, love to uh, say a quick hello to you. So I, uh, I went to seminary, which is graduate school for people who want to study to be uh, pastors and, and ministers. And while I was there, one of my favorite professors was a guy named Michael Green, or at least uh, Professor Green was one of my favorite professors until the day that he gave us what is now affectionately known as the quiz. So Prof Green walks into class one day and uh, we're all seated there and he looks at us and he says, I want to let you know that at the end of the class period, I'm going to be handing out a take-home quiz and you're going to have one week to complete this quiz. You can spend as much time studying for this quiz as you want and let me give you a strong hint. Everything on the quiz is going to be in the course packet of notes that I handed out at the beginning of the semester. That's all you need to know. It is all in the notes. Take as much time as you want. When you're done, put away your notes. Spend as much time as you want working on that quiz. You just can't use anything other than your Bible. You can't open the notes. You can't talk to anybody, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so that was it. So uh, we're thinking, okay, this isn't going to be so bad because it's a take-home kind of, you know, quiz, which was actually not that unusual when I was in seminary. So at the end of the class period, as we're leaving, he hands us each this uh, manila envelope, and that was my first clue that there was something uh, a little bit unusual about this quiz because the weight of that envelope was uh, heavy enough at least to break the backpack that was on my back. This, this thing was really thick and heavy, and I'm thinking... I don't know about this as a quiz. And in fact, you know, I did my studying and I opened up the manila envelope and I see what is now a 20-page, single-spaced, 567,000 question quiz. And I'm looking at this and saying, if you're going to call this a quiz, that's kind of like calling open heart surgery a minor procedure. But I had studied, you know, I had read all the notes a couple of times through, I had marked up things and all that, and I thought, I'm in pretty good shape. So I opened a quiz, I start working my way through it, and I figured this was going to take me an hour or so, because it's a quiz, right? It took like three, four hours, I'm exhausted by the end of the time. But when I finished it, I said, you know what, I think I did pretty well on this quiz. I think I knew what I was doing, I deserve a good grade, I think I'm going to end up getting a good grade. So I bring the quiz into class uh, the next week and Professor Green looks at us and he says, okay folks, you're gonna grade your own quizzes. And that actually wasn't that unusual for us in seminary. We're studying to be ministers, so we're supposed to be at least reasonably honest, you know, as we're uh, grading things. Once in a while, they'd have us hand the paper to the person next to you and you'd grade each other's, which was always an interesting thing. You're like, am I gonna be nice to you or are you gonna be nice to me, you know, that kind of thing. But this time he has us grade our own quizzes. And so he starts off and he says, okay, number one, somebody tell me what your answer was to question number one. So some guy raises his hand and Professor Green calls on him and he gives his answer to question number one. And I'm sitting there thinking, that's a pretty good answer. I think that's good. Professor Green looks at him and he says, mm, 
That's all right, but I want you to flip to page 27 in the notes and look at footnote number three. You missed these three points that I mentioned here in footnote number three on the bottom of page 27, so give yourself half credit for that. And if you had exactly what I have in the footnote, you can, have, you can give yourself full credit. And if you have any answer that is less detailed than this guy's answer here, give yourself no credit. So I wrote down half credit on mine and said, this is going to be a long day. And so we continue working our way through, and this happens on every single question. This guy moved from the top of my list of favorite professors to like the absolute bottom of the list. We're going through it and, and you could feel the anger rising in the room as he is being so unbelievably picky, so unbelievably detailed, and, and we're just, we're, we, you know, we just wanna jump up and, and, and wring this guy's neck. So we get to the end of the class period, and he says, total up your scores. And I added up my score, and this was probably the lowest grade that I had ever seen on any quiz, test, or anything else since I was in third grade, you know, something like that. Okay, mild exaggeration. But the point is, I felt like I deserved a good grade because I had studied hard, I knew the material, and this guy was being so picky, he wanted perfection on this quiz. And so we're just all super angry at him, and we're, we're, we're saying, I deserve better than you're giving me on this. You know, and if you stop and you step back and you think about it, we live in a society where we deserve because we work hard, we study hard, we play hard, and we work hard. So we deserve to be paid well. We study hard, so we get good grades, or we deserve to get good grades. We play hard, so we deserve to win, or at least to get a trophy for participating. You know, We deserve, and that's the kind of society in which we live. Maureen Dowd is a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, op-ed writer for the New York Times. She puts it this way. She says, the minute you settle for less than you deserve, you get even less than you settled for. So don't settle for less than you deserve. We should get what we deserve, and that's the way that we live, and that's the way that I was thinking with regard to this quiz. And we do the same thing with religion, right? You ask the average person on the street, I don't care what their religious background is, if they are religious or spiritual at all, and you ask the average person on the street, What's the bottom line? What does it take to have favor with God or to receive blessing from God or to go to heaven or however you want to put it? The average person on the street is going to say, you have to be a basically good person. And if you're a basically good person, whatever that means, however that's defined, you deserve to go to heaven or to be blessed by God or to have favor with God or whatever it is. And if you ask them, how do you define a basically good person, essentially comes down to, I'm better than average. I'm better than the next guy. I've done more good things than the person next to me. And the flip side of that is, and we don't often talk about this, but it's, it's, it's true for a lot of us. The flip side is that if we do bad things, we think that we're going to 
lose God's love or we're going to lose God's favor. We're going to lose his, lose his blessing. You know, when you were a kid, right, you're walking along the sidewalk and you don't step on the crack because if you do, you're going to break your mother's back, right? Okay, silly little superstition. But we do the same thing in terms of our relationship with God. I yelled at my kids before I left for work for today. That's why my presentation bombed, right? Or, uh, you know, I had an argument with my wife before, you know, when I came home, and that's why whatever this other bad thing that happened. So we almost live as if we believe in karma, even though most of us would probably say, no, I don't really believe in karma. But so many times we act like it in that way, and we feel like God's love for us depends on our character and what we do. So back to the quiz. We're all sitting there looking at our least favorite professor, Professor Michael Scumbag Green. And we're, we're, we're like, what just happened here? And he could sense that we were unhappy with him. I guess he was at least mildly perceptive at that point. And he says, would you like some extra credit? And I'm, I'm sitting there saying, no, of course I don't want any extra credit. I really enjoy getting lousy grades. Yes, give me some extra credit, right? So we're all saying that. And he says, all right, define grace. And I remember my immediate reaction was, define grace. We haven't even talked about grace in this. It wasn't in the notes. You've probably got some particular little detailed definition that's, you know, three paragraphs long. And if I don't get it exactly right, I'm going to get no extra credit on this. And, and you, could, you could, again, you could sense everybody's grumbling and complaining in this way. So I just said, fine, fine, fine. And I wrote down, unmerited favor because I'd heard that definition of grace given once before. So I write down unmerited favor and I begin to pray that Professor Michael Green would show me some unmerited favor because I absolutely needed it at that point. And this concept of grace is so fundamental to Christianity. It's at the heart of what it means uh, to be a Christian. There was uh, some years ago, there was a conference of British uh, intellectuals, and they were talking about comparative religions. And one of the questions that came up was, what is unique about Christianity, if anything? Is there anything that is unique about Christianity. And so one person was proposing the incarnation, but others argued, no, in other religions, the gods came down to earth, and so the incarnation uh, isn't really unique to Christianity. And somebody else said the resurrection, you know, Jesus rising from the dead. And the response to that was, yeah, that is super important to Christianity. And without the resurrection, you don't have Christianity, but you've got resurrection in other religions. And so they're having this debate and they're arguing back and forth. And then this guy named C.S. Lewis walks in and he says, what are you guys talking about? And, and they explained it to him. And they said, so what do you think? What is unique about Christianity? And C.S. Lewis, without missing a beat, says, that's easy. It's grace. Grace is what is unique about Christianity. No other religion has that in the same way that Christianity does. There's a pastor down in Florida named Tullian Chavidjian, and uh, he's Billy Graham's, he happens to be Billy Graham's grandson, and he's written this, this uh, really cool book called One Way Love, and in that, he defines grace. He says, grace is 
unconditional acceptance given to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. Grace is one-way love. Grace is love flowing from God to us without respect for anything that we've done, anything that we are other than the fact that God created us. It's one-way love. God is not obligated to show us grace. We can't earn grace. We don't deserve grace. It has nothing to do with anything that we've done. It's based completely on God's character because that's who he is. And if you think about uh, the history of the world as laid out in the Bible, you see grace over and over and over again. We usually think of grace as this New Testament concept. It's actually found all throughout the Old Testament as well, beginning right in the very beginning. So if you think back just to the opening chapters of the Bible, when God created the world, it's beautiful, it's perfect, it's majestic, it's glorious. And leave aside all the debates about how God created the world. Did he do it in seven you know, literal 24-hour days? Did he take millions of years? Interesting, important question. We can have a, a great discussion about that sometime. But if we focus on that, we miss the fact that God created the world and he did so in magnificent fashion. But just think about what we see around us you know, when it's dark outside and there's stars in the sky and you look and you see the incredible beauty of the stars and the moon in the sky. Or it's snowing. Yesterday morning, I was sitting at my desk working and I turned around, there's this window behind my desk and I look out and I see the snow in the neighbor's yard and the trees in the background and there's just these little flurries coming down and I just stopped and I'm amazed at the incredible beauty that God has created for us. When Ann and I went on our honeymoon, we were in Hawaii and we got to spend some time snorkeling and we went to this area where there was this coral reef, all hundreds or thousands of fish of all different colors, never seen anything like that and the beautiful coral and some of the undersea plants and, and, and different things like that. You know, and you realize there's an incredible beauty, an incredible variety in this world that God created. And after God created the world, he stepped back and he looked at it and he said, it's good. He was pleased with what he created. And then he did something amazing. He created us. And watch what happens here in Genesis 1 verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Then in verse 28, God blessed them. He said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They'll be yours for food. What did God just do? He created this incredible creation and then he gave it to us. He said, it's yours. I want you to care for it. I want you to enjoy it. I've given you all this different food. Try it. Enjoy it. Look at the beautiful sunsets. Climb the trees. Play in the streams. 
do whatever you want. I've given this to you because I love you. And that's the grace of God right from the very beginning. God poured out his grace on us, not because we deserve it, because how could we have deserved it? Because we didn't even exist when he created the world. So his giving us this beautiful, incredible world to enjoy had absolutely nothing to do with who we were, because at the time, we didn't exist until he created us. He wanted to pour out his grace on us because that's his nature. That's who he is. Pastor down in Atlanta named Andy Stanley puts it this way. He says, there's more beauty in this world than any one person can fully comprehend. Greater abundance than any one person can consume. Why? That's the nature of grace. Grace is never just enough. Grace is always more than enough. From the very outset, God established his pattern of lavishing grace on those he loves. And so right from the beginning, God's default disposition towards us is one of grace, but not just grace, one of lavish grace, of so much more than we could ever think of, than we could ever dream of, and that we can ever fully enjoy, because that's the kind of God who he is. And we need to keep that in mind when we move from the garden into the desert. And in Genesis chapter 3, we find Adam and Eve decided they were smarter than God. And so rather than trusting God and doing what he said to do, they were going to do things their way. And the world has never been the same since. Their relationships with one another, their relationships with God, even their enjoyment of the creation that God had made was broken. And if you've uh, spent time going through the project with us, we spend, you remember that we spend an entire session on that. If you haven't been through the project, let me encourage you to sign up because it's, it's just so much fun to be able to talk through and see people who have maybe been through Genesis chapter 3 before and have read it and, 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 and know it, but seeing some of the implications that maybe we've never seen before and others who this is the first time that they're reading through it and they're seeing and they're saying, oh yeah, now I understand why my relationships are broken. Now I understand why there are times when I feel estranged from God. Anyway, great opportunity just to kind of dig in and gain, gain a deeper understanding of this. But Adam and Eve decided to trust themselves rather than trust God. And as a result, their relationships with God and one another were broken. And if you follow through the storyline of the rest of the Bible, you may remember that uh, the children of Israel, the people of Israel, were slaves in Egypt for a period of about 400 years. And God raised up a man named Moses and used Moses to lead them out of slavery in Egypt, doing all sorts of miraculous signs for them, including uh, parting the Red Sea so they could walk through on dry land, destroying the entire Egyptian army. So then he leads them to the edge of what we call the promised land. The Bible describes it as a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a land of grace. It's a land of beauty. It, it's, it's not quite the Garden of Eden, but it's a whole lot better than where they were in Egypt. And God says to them, if you trust me, I'll lead you into that land. I will give you this land and you can enjoy it because I love you. But the Israelites did the same thing that Adam and Eve did. They didn't trust God. 
And the consequences of that were that they ended up having to wander through the desert for about 40 years so that they could learn how to trust God. And so they turned down the opportunity to enjoy God's grace in the land of Canaan, and instead they had to wander throughout the desert. And at the end of their 40 years of wandering, they're standing again on the edge of this land flowing with milk and honey. And God is recounting to them all that's happened over the past 40 years. And he says something kind of, uh, kind of striking, kind of unusual to them. Deuteronomy chapter uh, 29, verse five, the Lord says, during the 40 years that I led you through the wilderness, your clothes did not wear out, nor did the sandals on your feet. Your clothes didn't wear out, nor did the sandals on your feet. And he actually repeats it twice. Elsewhere in the book of Deuteronomy, he says, your clothes didn't wear out and your feet didn't swell. If you spent 40 years wandering through the wilderness, you think your clothes would last? Your sandals would last? Absolutely not. God was showing them his grace even in the midst of the desert. He was giving them blessing that they probably had no clue they probably didn't stop and say, hey, you know what? We didn't need to, to get new clothes. We didn't need to make new shoes because God was showing them this grace. God does not always remove the consequences of our actions. He doesn't always remove the consequences of our sin. Sometimes he does, but sometimes he doesn't. They had sinned. They hadn't trust him. They had to wander for 40 years in the desert. He doesn't always remove the consequences of our sin, but he always shows us grace, even in the midst of those consequences, even in the midst of the desert, even in the midst of the pain of living in this broken world. And whether the pain we're going through is just simply because this world is broken and it has nothing to do with a particular sin that we've committed, or even if we're experiencing the consequences of our sin, God is a God of grace who is still going to continue to show us grace. Israel's King David puts it this way in Psalm 103. He says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And then we move to the New Testament and we think of the cross and the cross is God's ultimate act of grace. It's his ultimate demonstration of grace to us. And the apostle Paul, one of the leaders of the early church, he puts it this way in the book of Ephesians. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who's rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ, seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show us the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Paul's saying, God does not give us what we deserve. 
He gives us something so much better than what he deserves. Ultimately, God gives us himself. He sacrificed himself for us as the ultimate act of grace, not because we earned it, not because we deserved it, not because we were good enough, but because that's who he is. That's what his character is because he's a gracious God. Later on in in the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul says, God made him, referring to Jesus, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus got what I deserved. Jesus got what we deserved so that we could get what he deserves. And that's God's grace for us. And so then how do we respond? You know, when we think about the grace that God showed us in creation, the grace that he shows us in the desert, the grace that he shows us on the cross, how do we respond to these things? There are three questions that I want to give you to ask yourself. I'd really encourage you to do this on a daily basis, if not on a daily basis, at least on a weekly basis. Ask yourself these three questions. First, where am I seeing God's grace? Where am I seeing God's grace? In the world around me, in the beautiful snow, in the sky, in the the variety of food that I get to eat, where am I seeing God's grace there? Where am I seeing it specifically in my life? In what unique way is God pouring out his grace to me? Second question, where am I overlooking God's grace? The Israelites overlooked God's grace in the desert. They were just grumbling and complaining. They didn't realize that God had enabled them to have their clothes last for the entire 40 years of wandering through the desert. So in the midst of your desert, where are you overlooking? Where are you missing God's grace? And if you need to ask God to show you, Lord, where am I overlooking your grace? Where are you showing me your grace? Then I'm not recognizing it. And then third, how am I responding to God's grace? Am I taking it for granted? You know, I take it for granted that when I go down the street to the grocery store, there's going to be food there. But ultimately, that's an act of God's grace because there are people around the world who don't have the grocery store down the street or who when they go to the grocery store, there's no guarantee that they're going to find any food there. So where am I overlooking God's grace and how am I responding to it? To it? Am, I, am I taking it for granted or am I thanking him for it? Am I worshiping him for it? Am I praising him? For his grace. My former favorite professor, Michael Dirtball Green, had asked us to define grace. And after we finished writing our answers, again, he could tell we were a little bit anxious, we were a little bit angry. And he looked at us and he said, If you want, you may cross out the score that you have earned, that you've written down on your paper, and you may write 100% on the top of your paper. We all kind of sat there in stunned silence, and he said, yeah, if you'd like, you can have a perfect score on this quiz, or you can take the grade that you earned. Michael Green had just gone from the top to the bottom, and right back up to the top of my list of favorite professors. 
because that's how he defined grace. And that was amazing. And then he collected our quizzes and he said, for obvious reasons, I'm not going to be handing these back to you because what was interesting is hundreds and hundreds of students had taken this quiz before us and not one of them had told us that this was coming. And I'm so glad that they didn't. By the way, he's no longer teaching so that I haven't given away anything in case you decide to go to seminary there. So he collected the quizzes and he said to us, you know, I like to read through these and I like to see the kind of answers uh, that students put down here so I can learn from that. And he said, there are two things that I notice every year. First, almost every single one of you is going to give yourself more points than you actually deserve. You graded yourselves a whole lot higher than you actually deserved. And we're like, yeah, you're probably right about that. And then he said, every single year, there are a few of you who choose to take the grade that you earned, the grade that you deserve, rather than the grade that I'm offering you by grace. And I just said that, sat there and said, wow, you know, isn't that so true? Don't we do the same thing in our relationship with God? I have a whole lot higher view of myself than I ought to have. I think I deserve so much more than I really do deserve. And there are some people who in spite of the fact that God offers his grace freely, without obligation, that he offers his grace to us, there are some people who say, no, I want to earn. I want to get what I deserve. And the question that I want to ask is, why, why would we settle for what we deserve when we could have so much more, so much more than we could ever imagine because we've got a God who loves us so much that in the garden, he created a perfect, lavish, abundant, overflowing environment for us to live in and he gave it to us freely by his grace. Even in the desert, even when we deserve the consequences of our actions, God still pours out his grace on us. And then on the cross, he gave himself for us. Why wouldn't I turn to him and say, please give this to me? And really, the only thing standing between me and the enjoyment of the grace of God is my pride. And so what I need to do is swallow my pride and say, you know what? I don't deserve all that you have given to me. Thank you so much. And I ask you to just forgive me, help me to trust in you, help me to turn to you because I want that 100% at the top of my paper so much more than I want what I've earned, than I want what I deserve. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you 
that you're a God of grace. I thank you that you showed it to us in creation. I thank you that you show it to us in the desert. I thank you that you showed it to us on the cross. And I pray, I pray that we would not be so proud that we wouldn't turn to you and ask for your grace, ask for your love, ask for your forgiveness, ask for the, the lavish blessing that you are so eager to pour out on us. And I thank you that you love us and that you are gracious toward us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, I'm so glad that you came out this morning and hope to see you back tonight at Vespers.